Hi, everyone. Welcome to Finding Anchor, Parenting in the New Non-Normal, a podcast for parents and their teens. My name is Tim Cavell. And I'm Phyllis Fagel. Tim and I are both authors and therapists who work with parents, teens, and families. I wrote the book, Middle School Matters, The 10 Key Skills Kids Need to Thrive in Middle School and Beyond, and How Parents Can Help. And I wrote a book for therapists called Working with Parents of Aggressive Children. We both also work in schools. Phyllis is the counselor at Sheridan School, a K-8 school in Washington, D.C., and I teach at the University of Arkansas in the Department of Psychological Science. The past year has been hard on many of us. We are still dealing with a global pandemic, even after months of being locked down and staying socially distanced. Our aim with each podcast episode is to offer support, information, hope, and affirmation to parents and teens, especially those who are struggling emotionally during these tough times. Finding Anchor is a five-part limited series presented by Trestle Tree. New episodes will air every Wednesday. You can listen and subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever you do your listening. I'm going to ask Phyllis to introduce today's guest on Finding Anchor. I'm so excited to have Jess Leahy with us today. Uh, She happens to be a personal friend, but long before she was a friend, I was reading her articles in the New York Times, in the Atlantic. I knew she was a highly respected teacher. I think she taught for more than 20 years in public and private schools, including in a facility for kids who were getting treatment for addiction, which led to her most recent book, The Addiction Inoculation, which will be out next week, April 6th. It is coming on the heels of her New York Times bestseller, a wonderful book called The Gift of Failure. Today, though, we will be talking about uh, The Addiction Inoculation, which is a fantastic book that I highly recommend pre-ordering. So welcome, Jess. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm so happy to get the chance to talk with both of you. Well, and we should probably mention that Jess has a prior book that's done incredibly well and very well read by parents called The Gift of Failure. And so I'd like to start with this question, Jess. You write about the gift of failure. You write about addiction. Do failure and addiction have anything to do with the times we're living in now? Possibly. There is a dovetail between these two books, and I actually didn't fully see it at first, but I think it revolves around a lot of what Phyllis and I both do in working with kids, which is helping kids find a place where they feel seen, heard, and known. They have this thing called self-efficacy, a feeling like they have some control, some ability to make decisions and to act, and that it will actually change the world or make their lives better. And that really is at the center of you know not only teaching and counseling kids, and then helping kids understand that even when things don't go well, if they have these feelings of self-efficacy, if they feel like they have some sense of agency, then hopefully that can lead to real change in their lives. And so they don't feel like they need to resort to numbing out their feelings, blanking out their feelings, denying they have feelings in the first place. The biggest part of what I do really comes down to just helping kids feel like there is a route to becoming their best selves. And the gift of failure is called that not because I want kids to fail, but because I want them to have a positive adaptive response to failure. And the addiction inoculation builds on that by saying one of the big risk factors for kids turning to substances is a feeling of hopelessness and a feeling of helplessness in the world. And so helping kids not feel hopeless and helpless is at the center of what I do. So all three of us are parents, Jess, you have two boys and Mm -hmm. 
leads to, you know, an obvious follow-up question, which is what can we as parents do to help our kids have a sense of self-efficacy, especially in the middle of a pandemic when nobody feels much of a sense of control? I think that's the question I've gotten the most the past year, especially since we as parents feel like we have so little control over everything. And our tendency when we feel out of control is to clamp down on the things to get more control over the things that we feel like we have control over. So my house has never been cleaner. You know, I've cleaned the lint trap. I've controlled everything I control inside my house. And that has sometimes meant my kid. And that has been a problem because kids lost control of so many aspects of what they're allowed to do and places where they have autonomy. And then all of a sudden on top of that, the adults in their lives are taking more control over them. So I think the best thing that we can do, especially now, is give kids a little bit more control over the details of their lives, a little more autonomy, more options to feel like they have the ability to move away from this from a place of feeling like they have some competence, like they have some control over the details of their life, which it's easy to say and really hard to do, mainly because finding the places where we can give kids some control right now is tough. But there are places where we can do that. Have there been any concrete things you've done in your own home that you think have helped with your teen son? Yeah, I think, you know, what's been really interesting is schools that are really responsive to the needs of kids right now have realized that they've had to be extra flexible. Um, my son's school, for example, not only is it they don't use grades, letter grades, they use, they have like standards-based grading, and it's really about mastery and learning and the process more so than the end product, which has been great. But that's also meant that this year they have since that sort of is at the center of their ethos, they've also looked at what's going on. I'm also, by the way, in rural Vermont. And so there are a significant number of kids who do not have reliable access to the internet. So they've had to look at their situation and say, how do we best support our students? The way we do that is by being even more flexible about due dates and things like that. But at the end of the semester, we got this note saying, for some students that have had sick family members that have had all kinds of other stuff going on in their lives, we've decided this has been a really difficult time for learning. And so we're going to offer the option to have pass fail on a limited scope. So the schools have had to be more flexible. So kids, actually, this is a great time for you to say, fine, you know what, if your school is being more flexible, now is the perfect time for me to step back and have you be in charge of the homework, the grades. I'm not going to check the portal anymore. You're the one who has to log onto the portal because if they screw up right now, there's that added cushion of flexibility from the school. So there's no better time to step back on schoolwork than right now. And for little, little kids, that can look like helping facilitate conversations between the kids and the teachers, helping your kid write a little note for the teacher and letting your kid tell you what to type for the teacher to help the teacher understand what they do and don't understand. And for older kids, obviously that means just stepping back and saying, you know, this school stuff, that's your job, not mine. So I'll be here to support you and I love you, but you really need to step up and take control of this situation. You know, when I look at your books and the way you approach parenting and your keen awareness of both of you, actually, the internal struggles of children, I'm, I'm reminded of not the gift of failure, but the gift of curiosity. You do a good job of cautioning parents about not overselling praise, not mm -hmm. reinforcing children for their innate talents, and to sort of get in sync with their internal world be curious mm -hmm. about what their struggles are. And I think that's particularly important with something like the use of substances, which is often a way to regulate emotions. If there's an important task for parents for both promoting self-efficacy and preventing substance abuse, I would think it's being curious about how they manage their internal world, including their emotions. Does that sound in sync the way you approach it? 
Yeah, actually, Phyllis has been a great help with this. We also are part of a group of parenting educators. Uh, we created this thing called Parenting in Place Masterclass. And sort of the repeated mantra of the past year has really been for kids, helping them name these really complicated emotions they're having. And that's whole name it to tame it sort of situation. In order to get control of your emotions, you have to be able to talk about them. And so often what I see are kids suddenly labeling the emotions as, and parents doing this as well, labeling emotions like frustration or or big emotions like that, where the kid, you know, you don't, we don't like to see our kids be frustrated. We don't want them to feel stupid and we don't want them to feel like they're less than. And so we rush in to help. But the problem is, is that wrestling with some of those emotions are what allows a kid to actually see through tasks that lead to some of the most durable learning that we can give them in education. So like in Gift of Failure, we talk about this thing called desirable difficulties and some of the deepest learning we can give kids comes from the ability of that kid to sort of stick with something that's a little frustrating with them and see it through to the end. What I see a lot, especially in my students at the rehab, I was teaching them for five years and there were a lot of kids who were dealing with big T trauma, um, adverse childhood experiences in their background and had gotten into a place where their self-efficacy was so low because so much control had been taken out of their lives that there was this sort of throw your hands up in the air and say, well, no matter what I do, nothing can change. I can't affect any outcomes. So why should I even bother? It's much easier to help a kid maintain a feeling of self-efficacy as they grow up than to try to get one back once it's lost. The, a lot of the kids that I was teaching at the rehab are, you know, practically adults and they're going into adulthood with a feeling of there's nothing I can do that's going to change my circumstances. So why bother? And it's really hard to remediate that. So starting really early, helping kids feel like they have a sense of self-efficacy and that they can deal with a little bit of frustration and that they can hold on and just have some faith that they'll be able able to figure it out. That's sort of at the core of promoting competence in kids. That's so important to getting them to be competent and, and healthy adults. I love that. And actually, one of the things I've noticed in the last few months with my own students is that there's two pieces to it. It's the identifying the emotions, but also mm -hmm. accurately identifying the emotions. So I had a student <laughs> who was in my office telling me he was really anxious. And when I asked him why he was anxious, he told me that he had entered a contest and he didn't know if he would win or lose. And I said, is it possible you're excited and that you hope you'll win. And he looked at me and he's like, yes, I think I, <laughs> I think I'm excited. Yeah. And then he said, but if I lose, I'm going to be really angry. And I said, did anyone else enter the contest? And he said, everyone in the class entered. And I said, do you think the other 22 people in the class should be angry if you win? And he said, no. <laughs> and it's that extra level of yeah. kind of digging in a little bit to help kids identify the feeling and also think of about how they can maybe calibrate their response a little bit. Yeah. I got a note from a student last week. He's a senior at a really academically rigorous, very expensive private school. And he is really scared. And, you know, college admission stuff is happening right now. And he was feeling incredibly out of control. And what I often do is ask the students to tell me what they want me to tell their parents. And what he asked me to tell his parents is to let him have some hope that even if college doesn't work out, that there might be a path to happiness. And what I was seeing was a kid who had such tunnel vision for one path 
to a place that will give him happiness that he couldn't even consider that there might be any other way to get there. And that if this didn't happen for him, that he would lose all support. That was what was in this question. And it was heartbreaking to read because this is a kid who's about to go out into the world on his own and feels so completely lacking in not just happiness, but in hope. And I would hope the parents that I told about this comment, I was hoping that they would hear that and say, oh my goodness, we need to be supporting our kids even if they're not bringing us the exact performance that we're hoping for, not doing that love in exchange for a performance thing that's so deadly for kids. And I think as parents, it's really hard to put that poker face on and pretend it's not a big deal when you know it's a big deal to your child or when you know they've been working hard for something. But it is so important that they understand that how they do in that kind of a process, any process where they don't have the ultimate control, that they know that they're supported by their parents, no matter what the outcome is. Absolutely. Finding Anchor. Parenting in the New Non-Normal is brought to you by Trussell Tree, a health transformation company founded on the belief that anyone, regardless of their level of motivation, can change difficult health behaviors and sustain those changes long-term. For the past 20 years, Trussell Tree has helped employers lower their healthcare costs through engaging and influencing employees and family members to holistically improve health conditions such as diabetes, obesity, stress, high blood pressure, and tobacco addiction. A supporting sponsor for this podcast is Foreign Service Benefit Plan, focusing on the mental wellness for all members. To learn more about Trussell Tree, visit www.trusselltree.com. That's www.trusselltree.com. And now back to the show. You know, when you told that story, Jess, I was reminded I was asked to be a technical editor on Parenting for Dummies. You've heard of those books? <laughs> I have one here called Common Core Math for Parents for Dummies. There you go. <laughs> it's sort of like, I love all the steps there. It's not right. even Common Core Math for the kids. It's for the parents who don't understand the Common Core Math. Exactly. <laughs> well, one of the little sidebars that I wrote was entitled, What Are You Going to Do? And I suggested in the sidebar that it's one of the best but least used lines that mm -hmm. parents have. That when you ask children, particularly after you validated what they're dealing with emotionally, that sounds tough. You're worried about school or which college you're going to get into, what have you. That following up with the question of what are you going to do doesn't sound like help to many parents. It may sound like they're abandoning their job of providing that structure, but it's a different way of helping. So it's conveying a message that I trust that you can work through this and I'm here to help if you need it. I think that's a real misconception. And I fall into this all the time that when my kid comes to me with something, and this happens even in my professional work, I want to be able to fix things for people. I really do. You know, that's why I do the work that I do. And when I don't have an answer, I really beat up on myself. And then I realize, wait a second, this person doesn't need an answer from me. This person just needs me to listen to them. And I think that gets lost a lot. And I really worry about kids feeling like the expectation is they should always have the answer. They should 
should always have the perfect answer all the time. And that really keeps kids from taking any chances. And one of the things that your comment made me think about is in the rehab, I used to teach this really wonderful 15 minute documentary called Follow Through. And it's about a woman, she happens to be a former student of mine who wanted to ski all of the shoots in the Wasatch Range. It's called the Shooting Gallery. And one of the shoots, actually, her stepbrother had died in an avalanche there. And it's a very avalanche prone area. So her goal is to do all the shoots in the shooting gallery. That's her big dream. And so she has to create all of these smaller achievable goals in the intermediary there between herself and the big goal in order to achieve that big goal. And one of those is, for example, to get certified in avalanche training. So I would show this video to my students and I'd say, okay, what is that huge thing you wish you could do? And the kids come up with all kinds of amazing things. And I say, okay, that's great. You can absolutely do that. But what are your short-term goals that you're going to have to do to achieve that thing? Like, what can you put into action today? What's What can you put into action tomorrow? And I think we tend to focus a lot with kids on those big goals, on saying you can be whatever you want to be. And then we forget that there's this whole middle part, which is, well, let's see, I'm going to have to stay sober, number one. I may need to find a mentor that can help me. So that's something I spent a lot of time doing when I was an advisor in middle school was helping kids find these achievable short-term goals. And not only does that give them a sense of control. It gives them an ability to have some sort of sense of completion on the way to their big goals, you know, and it builds that self-directed executive function, but it helps them build that sense of competency and self-efficacy. And I hate that we tend to gloss over the stuff in the middle of the achievable short-term goals, the next right thing that we have to do in order to get to those big, big goals, because we're so focused all the time on those big goals. And, you know, a lot of those big goals are out of our control. So if we bring things back to that internal locus of control for kids. I think we can do them a lot of favors. And that's a big step towards helping kids with substance abuse and helping them feel like they have a little more control over their life and not feeling that sense of oh powerlessness and spinning out of control in a world and feeling the need to self-medicate in order to make that go away or feel better. More power to the kids is always my motto anyway. I love that advice for right now, especially because even kids who are not struggling with substance abuse issues are I'm seeing more perfectionism, mm -hmm. kids who are shutting down because those goals seem just so elusive. You know, I sometimes use the metaphor of a ladder and I break right. it down to the rungs of the ladder for them, kind of the same right. concept. But my follow-up question does relate to substance yeah. use. Yeah. So when kids don't feel like they're competent, when they feel right. like they can't hit those rungs along the way toward that big goal, or they're incapable of setting those larger goals in the first place, and they do make a mistake, and maybe they get stuck in shame because mm -hmm. they're yeah. disappointed in themselves, or they're worried that they'll disappoint the adults in their lives. And maybe they've gotten caught drinking, or maybe mm -hmm. they were at a party where someone else was drinking and their parents are just upset that they were there and they're concerned about the situation. How should parents respond in these situations when kids do make these missteps that are hard to avoid in the teen years? I mean, the big picture answer is that you say, okay, we're focused on the process of learning. This is not like you've screwed up. That's it. It's all over. Let's just give up. And part of the recovery process for me, now that I have almost eight years of recovery, it's still, I'm scared to death of screwing up. But at the same time, screwing up is part of how we learn. So if these kids go ahead and screw up and they go to a party and they get caught, blah, 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 what are we going to do for next time to not repeat these mistakes? And then the sort of the more granular answer to that is we have to be modeling that sort of same attitude ourselves. 
Uh, in fact, I was thinking just recently about a podcast called Armchair Expert, and Dax Shepard is the host of that podcast. And he, until very recently, he had 16 years in recovery. And that's part of his image. Like everything relies on him having 16 years of recovery. His sponsorships, his audience, his fans, all of these people who tell me, you're the reason I stay sober. And he messed up. He started using opiates. And there's a wonderful podcast of his called Seven Days because he had to go back to having zero days instead of 16 years, suddenly he had zero days. The example that was set with that podcast is far more helpful than his 16 years ever were. Because if I ever were to slip and I were to take that first drink, for me, understanding that someone like Dak Shepard could be as humble and honest with the millions of people that listen to his podcast and come clean about that is a far more useful example for me to stay well, that to cling to, oh, I've got to keep this secret because if anyone knows that I've blown eight years of sobriety, it's over for me. I can look at that and say, no, that's the sort of growth. And the way I want to approach screwing up in my life is that right there. I can't pretend it never happened. I can't blame it on someone else. I have to use that as my role model. If we model that for our own kids, whether that's in our family, we tend to set a lot of short-term goals ourselves and we talk about them a lot. Very often I don't achieve my goals, but we have these constant conversations about, oh, what am I going to have to do next time in order to do that? If we can focus more on the process of becoming more complete, more mature, more whatever human beings and focus less on that end product of whether it's the 16 years or the A or the, you know, I played that concerto perfectly on the violin, we'd all be in a lot better shape. We'd all have a lot more patience with each other. I think we definitely have more patience with our children if we could all model that sort of process of becoming instead of focusing so much on this moment of how good am I right now? How perfect do I look right now? How perfect do I appear to other people right now? I can't tell you the number of times that my admiration for how Dax handled that situation has been a model to me as a human being. So I'm so grateful for people like that who could put it out there that they've really screwed up and have become better people for it. I got goosebumps. It's such a powerful story. Yeah. And I imagine yeah. too, it would help kids be more honest with their parents. If you know you're not going to get a right. really dramatic reaction, if you know that they are going to help you use it as an opportunity to learn, they're not going to create a fabricated story in order to cover their tracks. And we do really want our kids to be honest. And I think often kids aren't simply because they're afraid of their parents' reaction. Absolutely. And there's a fantastic book. It's a business book, actually, by Tim Harford called Adapt. And it's oriented towards business, but it has such great lessons for us, which is it's the business businesses that look at the huge disasters they've created or the mistakes they've made and are really honest and very clear-eyed and say, okay, here's what we did. Let's take it apart. What on earth? Do let's leave that crap behind. And now let's take this really good, valuable stuff forward with us. And those are the businesses that will succeed in the end, not the ones who blamed it on, blamed it on a classmate, blamed it on a team member, pretended like it never happened, pointed in the other direction. When I see kids make those mistakes, I say, oh, these are kids who are going to keep repeating their mistakes because they're not having that opportunity to take a really clear-eyed look at what they've done. And they're just going to take all the mistakes with them to the next iteration. You mentioned about being well. As a therapist, I tend to focus on what I call health with a capital H, you know, not mm -hmm. just mental or emotional, but physical, right. relational, everything. But life is hard and it's particularly <laughs> hard right now. I, yeah. I had a young patient uh, Friday. I loved it. He said, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. This year has sucked. 
you know, and that was a big thing for him because he's very competent, incredibly competent and manages most things well. But he's also a boy that a few months ago hit the wall and became really depressed and was talking about self-harm. And so now he has, I think, a much richer understanding of what it means to be well. It's more uh, layered. You know, Mm -hmm. as Carl Rogers, the famous therapist said once, the facts are always friendly. Well, the facts right now don't add up too pretty. No. What's been interesting is I mentioned this parenting in place masterclass. The other mantra besides the, you know, name it to tame it thing that we've been talking about a lot is that this year I just care less about whether or not (laughs) kids can add two fractions than whether or not they're emotionally and mentally healthy. And the good news to bring this back to substance abuse, the great news is that when you look at the really effective evidence-based proven effective by an objective third party substance abuse prevention programs. They are at heart really quality social emotional learning programs with a health component. So this means so much to me because if only 57% of schools in this country have a substance abuse prevention program, and of that 57%, only 10% are evidence-based, right there, we can be doing much better. And we have organizations, for example, the Blueprints program at University of Colorado Boulder that objectively look at SEL programs, that look at programs for kids of divorce that look at all kinds of programs that really get at social emotional learning and mental health. We can look at that list and say, okay, what are the really good quality programs? And when you start analyzing their programs, they're really good SEL programs and SEL programs are so essential. They happen to be very much a fad right now, which is a good fad, not a bad fad. And something that I think is going to be of extraordinary need in schools as we move forward out of this pandemic. So if schools can realize, wow, if we employ really good social emotional learning programs from very early in life, all the way until the end of high school, talking about substance abuse doesn't start with conversations about drugs. It actually starts with conversations about why we brush our teeth and why we wash our hands and all that kind of stuff. If we can just employ those really good SEL programs that we know are really important and make sure they have that good substance abuse uh, prevention component to them, I think we're going to be in really good shape. I'm optimistic when it comes to the fact that we have the tools, they exist. We know that over the long run, they save us a lot of money in treatment, in having to remediate problems that kids have and that address stuff from preschool all the way through to high school. I'm just so hopeful because it's not like we're having to reinvent the wheel here. We have the wheel. It exists. So let's just get it rolling in the right direction. Jess, at home, when parents are trying to incorporate some of the same social emotional Mm -hmm. skills that schools are attempting to incorporate as Mm -hmm. well, parents don't always agree. They don't always see eye to eye if you have a Mm two-parent household. And one of the points I've heard you make when you're talking about substance abuse is this idea that kids shouldn't be experimenting at home under the watchful eye of their parents. It does not prevent them from going crazy or going wild when Mm -hmm. they leave home. And I know that even in my own peer group among fellow parents, there's a a lot Mm -hmm. of disagreement within couples about how to manage that. Can you give some talking points to help parents make that argument? The research is really clear. So what we know is that parents who have a really consistent message of no, not until it's legal, 
21 in this country and we don't waver from that, then those kids are less likely to have substance use disorders during their lifetime. Now, there are some correlation causation, some statistical confounders in there that we can argue about. But on the other hand, I think a lot of families say, well, but look, in Europe, they teach them how to drink with moderation. They have a little water in their wine, kind of like the Italians do or the French do. And that way we can teach our kids to drink moderately. Well, not only does that A, not work, Europe has one of the highest rates of alcohol abuse in the world. Number two, we are talking about adolescent brains, that there are two periods of cognitive development that are where our brains are incredibly sensitive to the things we put in our bodies, the things that mess with the equilibrium in the brain, that zero to two and adolescence. And if we wouldn't give a pregnant person or a little, little kid alcohol, then we probably shouldn't be allowing adolescents to have alcohol either. So I'm not talking about like, oh, no one can drink or have drugs ever. And in fact, there's some really cool books out right now about adults and drug use. Carl Hart's new book is Drug Use for Adults, and there's Michael Pollan's book on psychedelics. That's all really interesting, and that's in the adult brain, and is there a lot less risk than we thought maybe in the adult brain? Maybe, yeah, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the adolescent brain when it's incredibly sensitive to our environment, when the things we put in our bodies and in our circulated around in our brain have very real, not just temporary, but permanent effects. You know, for example, kids who are chronic users of marijuana have much smaller hippocampi than kids who don't use marijuana. So, and the hippocampus is such an essential part of learning and memory and emotional memory storage. Give kids that information. I think we totally underestimate what kids can handle. And we know that the research shows that the substance abuse prevention programs that work, work because they give kids real information, help them manage their misconceptions, the myths, the misperceptions, and trust them to make some healthy decisions within the parameters of their cognitive development. If we can start doing that, we can get our kids into adulthood healthy. And remember, the longer we delay, the chances of our kids having substance use disorder during their lifetime falls with each year. If, for example, when they're in eighth grade, they've got over a 50% chance of having substance use disorder in their lifetime. But if we get them to 18, it falls to 10% even the difference between 10th grade and 12th grade. In 10th grade, it's 17%. And in 12th grade, it's 10%. It just falls with each year. So the message we should have is consistent. No, not until it's legal and delay, delay, delay as much as possible. That reminds me of my husband's parting words to my teen son as he was leaving to go to college for the next semester. I was laughing because I knew he had been paying attention to some of the things I talk about because mm -hmm. he's not a therapist. He doesn't do anything in the parenting realm. But the conversation went something like this. Ben, what do you know about your prefrontal cortex? And my son <laughs> responded, not good. And my husband goes, that's right. Be safe. Have fun. <laughs> I wasn't even going to write a college chapter at first because I thought, well, I mean, what are we going to do? College kids are going to drink, right? Turns out not only is that not true. And if you start thinking about in terms of like, who has the latitude to sort of blow off classes, maybe screw things up a little bit. And that may just be a very small slice. And by the way, college kids don't tend to drink normally. They tend to all binge drink. But 
Once I got into the research, it turns out that we misperceive how much other people care about drugs and alcohol. We tend to misperceive how much other people drink. And if you give kids the real evidence, and if you even give college administrators the real evidence on how much drugs and alcohol matter to kids, they might start offering, for example, opportunities to go to events that don't have alcohol. But we don't do that because we assume that everyone will want it, which is actually not true when you look at the statistics. When kids are surveyed in college about how much they care, whether or not there's alcohol at a given event, the numbers are so much lower than we would expect. So if we can get past our romantic visions and our sort of animal house perceptions of what college is and look at the real data about who drinks and how much and where and how we can help our kids get a real picture of the landscape, it all of a sudden became clear to me that we're self-perpetuating this myth that everyone drinks at college and that there's no way to get through college without binge drinking on the weekends. It's just not the picture of what's happening in colleges, but that's what we see in the media. So that's what we believe. That's reassuring. The risk of an alcohol-related disorder varied depending on one's genetic makeup. And you've written about this. I published a study years ago where we identified college students who were children of alcoholics. And we gave them a test to ask about their level of problem drinking. And we expected to find that the children of alcoholics would report higher problem drinking. And we found that. But the other hypothesis was that they might be more frequent abstainers given what they've mm-hmm. lived through. I was. That's exactly what yeah. I was. I was a total abstainer. In fact, I yeah. was a drug and alcohol counselor. <laughs> I was, in fact, I joke in the book, I was one of those people that would have to go after the frat would get busted for their keg party and they'd have disciplinary measures taken against them. I was the person who would have to go there and lecture to them about alcohol. I mean, can you imagine anything A, more boring? And I was... I don't know what my problem was, but I was such an abstainer in college that I actually didn't have my problems with alcohol, didn't come till much later in my life. Right. Where we found the difference, though, was in infrequent drinking, because as you said, average drinking for college students is quite high. And we didn't find any difference there between the children of alcoholics and the non-children of alcoholics. Mm -hmm. But the children of alcoholics, none of them reported a level of drinking that would qualify as infrequent drinking. It's as if that was not an option. Right. If you look at consumption on college campuses, actually, it's a small percentage of the students who are drinking most of the alcohol. And there are vast swaths of the campus where not a lot of people drink. But if you look at living circumstances, obviously, frat and off-campus housing and certain sports that are heavier drinking than others, and even among the the spectators and fans of those sports, it's a really strange environment in that there are a lot of people who aren't drinking at all, and then a lot of people who are drinking a lot. It also depends on what state you go to school in. There's so many factors that go into drinking habits at various colleges that affect the chances that your kid is going to drink a lot in college as well. Your message to your kids, drink, don't drink. Which, I mean, I know I'm putting you on the spot. No, here, no, no. I, we talk about this a lot because I have two kids, 22 and 17. My 17-year-old laments constantly about the fact that the rules have changed since I did the research for this book. It's taken me, I've, I've been working on this book for the past four years or so. And in those four years, the rules in our house have changed. Given what I know now, our message is a clear and consistent no, not until you're 21. Whereas with our older son, he could have sips at dinner and stuff like that. And and, and I say to him, I understand why that must be frustrating to you. But number one, 
I would be a not great parent if I were to know what the evidence says and then do differently. And number two, I'm modeling for you exactly what I would want to see from you. If you think you're doing the best you can do, and then you learn something that shows you that you're not doing the best you can do, and you change what you're doing in order to try to be better, that's all I could ever want from you. And that's what I'm doing. I'm sorry it feels unfair, and I can totally imagine why it would feel unfair, but this is why I'm doing it. And I think that's the biggest message here is telling adolescents not to drink just because or because I told you so or just say no or those sort of black and white messages. Those don't work. What kids want is information. They want the why. They want the rationale behind the thinking. Even if we make mistakes, as long as we're giving our rationale behind our thinking and we're showing the kids that we trust them to make good decisions, that we respect them enough to give them the data, then I can't help but think that that's always going to be a good thing, even if we muck it up sometimes. I think that is a perfect, powerful point to end on. And <laughs> even when we muck it up, sometimes. even when we muck it up sometimes, <laughs> the yes. gift of failure, <laughs> the gift of failure, the addiction inoculation all rolled into one. <laughs> well, thank you so much for of taking course. the time to talk to us today. This was so helpful. It's hard because I learned so much writing this book. I feel like it would take me hours to go through all of the subtle points. So it's really hard to get it into, you know, these little sound bites, but I really do think it has to do with focusing more on our kids as an ongoing process and less on making sure that we've got the, it all perfect and nailed down today. So I'm just so glad that there are people like you out there conveying that to kids as well. All right. All right. Thanks. Thank you guys. Bye, Bye Jess. Bye. See you later. And that's our show. Special thanks today to our presenting sponsor, Trussell Tree. To learn more about the good work they do, visit www.trusseltree.com. You can listen and subscribe to Finding Anchor on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever you do your listening. If you liked this episode, please consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts or sharing the show with a friend. We'll be back next Wednesday with a new episode. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye now.